Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the giver of every good gift. And we just sang a few minutes ago that you are alive. We believe that. We believe that you died and you rose again. And so you are alive now, which means that you can teach and instruct us through your spirit. You guide us. You lead us. You're good to us. And so we pray that we'd be mindful that you're present here with us and that you have things you want to teach and instruct us in. And we pray that we would be, uh, that we'd submit ourselves to all that you say is good and right and true. Trust you. Pray specifically today, Lord, that you would help us to believe that your ways are better than the ways of the world. Help us to see where we have uh, maybe not believed that or at least not practiced it. Guide and direct us. I pray that you'd help me now to make your word clear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 1. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. We'll have it on the screen. And once you find that, sort of put a finger there. And then I want you to go to Psalm 73, a few books back, because we're actually going to look at Psalm 73 for just a brief moment before we get to Isaiah 1. Well, many years ago, while you're flipping there, I'll tell you the story. Many years ago, I had a, a good friend. I had a situation uh, that a good friend gave me some advice in. And this is a good man uh, who meant well with his advice. But in the moment, I found that the advice perhaps was maybe not the best advice. Now, here's the situation I found myself in. And maybe some of you have found yourself in a situation like this. Uh, at one of the places where I was serving uh, as a pastor, I really wanted to be invited to, to lend my voice and my input to a certain table of leadership within the church. And that, that opportunity was not being afforded to me. It was not made available to me for a variety of reasons. And I found it really kind of difficult. I felt like I was designed to lead, designed to give that kind of input. That that's what God had made me to do. And yet I wasn't being invited to do that in this specific context. And I was kind of struggling with that and wondering like, why is that? And God, what are you up to? I feel like I'm made to do this and yet I'm not really being given the opportunity to do that. And th this well-meaning friend of mine, a good wise friend, uh, said to me, well, you know what? Why don't you just share with your leaders like, that you'd like an opportunity to, you know, help at, in this way by lending your strategic voice to these different types of conversations. And that sounded all well and good and that sounded fine. Uh, by the grace of God, I prayed about that before I actually did that. And you know, when you go to pray, does sometimes you say, God, what do you want me to do? And it still seems foggy. It's kind of like, ah, you know, I, I think maybe this, I'm not 100% sure. And then other times you pray and you ask God what to do and it is like completely crystal clear where there's just zero doubt about what he's saying he wants you to do in that circumstance. This was one of those moments. And I promise you, I did not hear an audible voice, but as clear as day, God said to me, be silent. Don't speak. You don't need to walk the path of self-promotion. You don't need to ask for a seat at that table. I know how to give you what I want to give you when I want to give it to you. And I know how to withhold it when I want to withhold it. You be quiet. That was, that's what, it was just as plain as the nose on my face, that's what God said. And so I, I by, by his grace again, I obeyed that. I was quiet. And you know, this, this story ends where I ultimately ended up being asked to come and be a part of, you know, leadership in certain ways and that sort of thing. That's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is that I found it very difficult to believe that God's way was better than my way. Right? Have you been there? And in this specific scenario, it felt hard to believe that God's way was the better way because God's way was really slow. 
God's way was, by my estimation, incredibly slow. And I struggled with that. And I wrestled with it. I was like, God, this is taking forever. And I had no promise that I was going to be given any opportunity. It just felt slow. But I also knew that God said, my way is better. You obey and trust and see what happens. And I found that to be true, even though it felt slow. It can be hard to believe that God's way is better, not just because sometimes it feels slow, but look with me at Psalm 73. I want to show you another example of a follower of God uh, finding it hard to believe that God's way is better. In Psalm 73, the psalmist, his name is Asaph, he writes this. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Fat was a compliment back then. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. That's a great illustration. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Do you hear what he's saying there? Even God's people are deceived into believing that, that these, these folks have it good that they must be doing something right, right? That's why he says, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then he says, all in vain, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you see what Asaph is saying? He's saying it's really hard to believe that God's way is better. Not sometimes because God's way just is really slow by our estimation of slowness and fastness, but because also it seems like people who are choosing a way other than God's, they seem to be doing pretty well. Things seem to be going pretty well for them. And it's hard to believe that God's way is better when that's taking place. That's what the psalmist is saying. Isaiah is going to begin in Isaiah chapter 1 for us. If you have, and turn over there now, if you would. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is going to begin in the first couple chapters, 1 through 5. He's going to be essentially saying to God's people, you are not practicing justice and righteousness. Those are going to be key ideas throughout the entire book, but particularly in these first five chapters. Now, what's one thing that's really pertinent for us church is that Isaiah does not begin by saying to people who are not God's people, here's all the things you've done that are not right. So he's not going to start with Babylon. He's not going to start with Assyria. And they're doing a lot of bad stuff, by the way. He's not going to start with them. He's going to start with God's people. He's going to say, these are the things that you are doing wrong. Here are the ways in which you are not demonstrating justice and righteousness. Those ideas, particularly in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, he's going to explain for us what justice looks like and what righteousness looks like. 
Actually, more importantly, he's going to say to us, here's what it looks like when you don't practice justice and when you don't love righteousness. That's what he's going to do in those chapters. But in chapter one, he's going to talk about the thing behind the thing, so to speak, right? He's going to talk about the thing that causes his people to not love justice and to not love righteousness. And the thing he's going to say is you have a failure of belief. You have failed to believe that my ways are better than the ways of the world. Now, whether it's because like Asaph, it seemed like the wicked prospered or whether it's because like me, it just felt like God's ways took forever it can be hard to believe that God's ways are the best ways. And so that's what he's gonna say to his people. I have this against you. You are failing to believe that my ways, my ways in your work life, my ways in your marriage, my ways in your relationships, my ways in what you do when no one's looking, my ways are better than the ways of the world. Are you with me, church? That's what he's going to talk to us about today. So we're going to take it piece by piece, Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 20 verses. That's where we're going to focus today. We're not going to look at the rest of the chapter because they just kind of repeat the same ideas that we find in verses 1 through 20. So we're going to try and answer the questions. Are God's ways the best ways? Right? That's the question we're trying to answer. Are God's ways the best ways? Well, Isaiah, God through Isaiah, is going to answer that with a resounding yes My ways are the best ways. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us three arguments why his ways are the best ways. Three arguments. And then he's going to kind of close up shop, praise him, with a promise of mercy when we haven't chosen his ways as the best ways. So we're going to have three hard arguments against us. And then we're going to hear something, a good promise that we can cling to when we haven't chosen God's ways as the best ways. Now, church, I need you to, I need you to get this, though. This is not just God's indictment of his people 2,000 plus years ago, okay? These things still hold true for us, right? When God speaks to his people, we have some of the same faults, some of the same failings, some of the same reasons we don't choose God's ways as the best ways that the people of Judah and Israel did in Isaiah's day. And so this applies to us as much as it did to them. So here now the first four verses. Let's look at those first four verses and see what God's first argument is. It says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He's just dating it now. He's saying, I spoke all the words I'm about to speak. I spoke them during the reign of these kings. Now, verse two, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and they are utterly estranged. Okay, so... The first argument that God is making, and you might not immediately see it in here, but the first argument that God is making about why his ways are better is he says, I'm a good father. I am a good father. And because I'm a good father, you should believe that I know the best ways to help you thrive and flourish, right? If you stated the the point of this whole chapter as not as a question, are God's ways the best ways? If you stated it just as a statement, you would probably say it something like this. 
God is, a, God is saying, if you obey me, you will thrive. If you rebel against me, it will lead to destruction. If you obey me, you will thrive. If you rebel against me, it will lead to destruction. That's essentially the message of Isaiah chapter 1. Now look again at what he says. He starts out in verse 2, and what he's doing is he's actually speaking to the heavens, right? So he's speaking to the stars and the sun, and then he's speaking to the earth, and he's essentially saying, I want you, created things, to bear witness, like we're in a trial here. I want you to bear witness against my people what I have done for them and how they should not have rebelled against me, but how they have. And then he says, after he kind of addresses the, the heavens and the earth, he then says, children have I reared and brought up. Okay, now here's what's interesting. In the ancient Near East, there were a lot of different world religions. And all of those, almost all of them, believed in the idea of a creator God, that there was a supernatural entity that created everything. But most, in fact, all essentially except for Judaism, taught that that God made everything and then kind of backed up and took his hands off of it and just set it into motion and let it go. Did not engage really in any way with the thing that he created. That's what most, that would not have been unique to, to uh, the Jewish faith, would not have been unique for their worldview to believe that there was a creator. What was unique was the idea that this God was actively and intimately involved in all that happened in his created world. That this God was not, and not just actively involved in the natural occurrences of natural law or in disasters here and there or in what took place in, on a large scale with nations, but that he was a father who called, him, called his people what there? Children. And then he says, children have I reared and brought up. In other words, what he's saying is, I have been actively involved in caring for, providing for, protecting, watching over, and giving my kids everything that they need. And yet they have failed to see my goodness and trust that my ways are best. That's why his first argument is, I'm a good dad. You should believe that my ways are best because I'm a good dad. You've seen, you've experienced my hand of favor in the minute details of your life. I wonder if you could testify to the same thing, could you? When you look back over your life and you think about the minutia of your life, the fact that this God is, I mean, like, just think about the scale of the universe. I wish I hadn't, I didn't prepare this, but I mean, I've seen all those illustrations. You've probably seen them too, where you talk about, you know, you get a piece of paper and you say, this is the size of the universe. And there's, you know, and it, every galaxy is a dot that you couldn't even see on this piece of paper. That's how, so God is above all of that. He's so massive. And yet we just sang this word. I love this word. He condescends to engage with us. Now condescends, we use that meaning he condescends. Like if I condescend to you, it means I talk down to you means I think you're less than I am, right? I'm con I mean, he's condescending, right? No one wants to be thought of as condescending. When we use that term theologically, we say God condescends. Do you know what we mean? We mean that he gets down and gets on our level in order to, to speak to us so we can understand him and hear him, right? The image of God condescending by becoming flesh in Jesus Christ is the image of when I talk to my two-year-old, I don't talk up here and say, hey, deacon, you're screaming and throwing a fit, like cut it out, right? He's upset about something. Let's, let's, not, let's not paint a bad picture of Deacon. Let's say, he's, let's say he's crying because he got hurt. That would have been better, right? 
and he, he's hurt and he's wounded. And what do I do? Say, hey, bud, it's going to be okay. You're going to be good. It's all right. Look up here. It's okay. Right? No, what do I do? I, I get down and say, bud, bud, it's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. I'm with you. I'm for you. Right? And I hug him. I hold him in. I'm, I'm, what am I doing? I'm condescending so that he might be comforted. So he might know the love of a father. And God says, I, I condescend. It's a great theological concept that we need to grasp, right? So here's what he's saying. Now, this doesn't paint a flattering picture, their failure to understand, because I don't know, did you catch the animals that he compares them to? He says, look, an ox knows its master. A donkey knows where it belongs. Like it knows its master's crib, he says. In other words, what he's saying is, Look, oxen and donkeys were not considered smart animals. They were considered dumb animals, right? And he's saying, even these dumb animals, they know who they belong to. And yet somehow you've missed it. So in other words, he's saying, my people, you are dumber than ox. You are dumber than donkeys. Like how can you have failed to see how good a father I am? That's in essence what he's saying. Argument number one, right? God is a good father. Therefore, we can trust that his ways are better than any other ways. And we have trouble believing in God as a good father. And it's probably no wonder. When I, was, when I was young, say middle school, high school, and I would stay home from school. And, you know, you're, you're sick and you don't really want to focus your mind on anything or read anything. So what do you do, right? You plop down on the couch and you, you turn on the TV, right? And after watching six episodes of SportsCenter and seeing every highlight six times, uh, what I would do then is I would click over and in syndication, these old black and white shows, uh, Gomer Pyle was always on. That was a good one. Anyone? Gomer Pyle? No? All right. Yeah, good. And my favorite though, my favorite was Leave it to Beaver. I loved Leave it to Beaver. Now some of you are too young and you're like, what? Right? So Leave it to Beaver came out in 1957. It's an old black and white show. But what I loved about Leave it to Beaver is, you know, Wally and the Beaver, they're the kids, and they're going to invariably get into some kind of trouble. And then, you know, and Eddie Haskell is usually the cause of it. Uh, and so at, the episode invariably will always wrap up in a nice little package moment. But who will almost always come to the rescue of Wally and the Beaver? Ward. Ward Cleaver, America's father, Right? He's like the ultimate dad. I mean, Ward Cleaver represented fatherhood as a man of integrity, as someone who, could, who was wise, who was trustworthy, who was even gracious and disciplined, right, with his kids. There was this image of fatherhood that you got from Ward Cleaver that was essentially the idea that fathers were really good, that fathers were really wise, that fathers were really trustworthy. Now, fast forward 20 years and ask yourself, how do we represent fathers in our favorite television shows? Let's just think about Everybody Loves Raymond for a moment, all right? Now, if you've seen that, that is a representation of father. Yeah, it's funny, right? Who's dad in that show? Dad tries to avoid as much work as possible. Dad is a blubbering idiot half the time, can never be trusted for wise advice, typically tries to avoid having to serve his family in any way because it would just be too much work. No wonder we have a hard time believing that a father is a good thing, that a father would actually know the best paths for us. Because to us, father is a punchline. Culturally for us, dad is a joke to be laughed at. But God's vision of what it means to be a father is something very different than that. He believes that fathers are supposed to represent integrity, 
and trustworthiness and wisdom and steadfastness that when they enter their home and speak with authority into the lives of their kids and serve and love their wives and lay down their life so that their wives might be more fully satisfied in Jesus. God seems to have this idea that a father is a noble thing. And when fathers are really fathers, people rejoice. Wives rejoice and children rejoice because they feel safety and protection and security. And they know they've got someone who can guide them through the turmoil of life because they've got a wise and good father. So when God says, argument number one, you should believe that I know my ways are the best ways. I know how to guide you and lead you. Because why? Because I'm a father and I'm a good one. Does that mean something to us? When we don't choose God's paths, when we choose other ways, shortcuts, when we lack integrity, we, I'm going to take the path of less integrity to get ahead faster, like Psalm 73. When we do that, at least in part, it's because we don't believe that God is a good father. Argument number two, you're going to find in verses five through eight. If argument number one is, I'm a good father, therefore I know the best ways. Argument number two is, other ways will ultimately devour you. Other ways will ultimately devour you. Here's what he says in verses five through eight. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. He's talking about foreign armies invading their land there. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now what he's talking about when he talks about that booth and that lodge, he's talking about during harvest season that the people of Israel, when they would harvest, they couldn't afford the time, it was too precious, to go back home and then come every morning again and harvest more. So they would build booths. They would build small little shacks to live in, in the fields. And they would sleep there at night, but they were never meant to be permanent dwellings. And so once the harvest was done, those shacks would essentially just fall apart or they'd, you know, you'd still see them sitting there, but it was clearly no one was supposed to be living in them. And he's saying, your nation has become like one of those empty, forsaken shacks after the harvest, right? That's an image they would have seen a hundred times, right? As they walk through the fields of their country. So they're familiar with this. That's what he's getting at. Now, what he's saying is, now let's clarify what we mean. When we say that God's ways are best, let me clarify what I mean by that. What I don't mean is that God's ways are the best ways and then there's other ways and they're just a little less good, right? That there's God's best way and then there's some other ways and yeah, they're not quite as good, but they're still, they're still really good, right? No, the picture God is painting for us here is this. There's his way, which is best and ultimate, and then every other way ultimately leads to destruction, that's what he's saying. It may not seem like it at the time, but every way other than God's way ultimately leads to destruction. That's the argument of verses five through eight. Now, when God judges, uh, whether it's his people or, or anyone else, when God judges, there's two ways in which he can judge. He can judge actively or he can judge passively, right? Now, here's what I mean by that. 
When you see in the scriptures, God is saying like, I have taken up the sword of judgment. I have done this. I have done that. That's God's active judgment. He's saying, I, I did that. I directly picked it up. I did it, right? That's one way to judge. Right? I disciplined my children, that sort of thing. The other way is God passively judging us. And that's most of what chapter one of Isaiah is talking about. It's a passive version of God's judgment where he's essentially saying, I have left you to the natural consequences of your choices. So he's not saying I actually took up the sword and I did it, but he's saying he's no less sovereign over it. He's no less in charge of it, but he's saying, I I just left you. Instead of protecting you from the consequences of your choices, I allowed the consequences of your choices to come to bear in your life. Have you experienced that before? Where you've made a choice And God chose not to protect you from the consequences of that foolish choice. And so you bear the consequence. That's a part of life. It happens. That's God's passive judgment. And that's the kind of judgment he's talking about here. He says, why why will you continue in this way? Don't you see that it's wounding you? He's literally saying you have wounds and they're not bound up. They're not being taken care of. Your cities as a nation are being besieged. They are burned to the ground. Don't you see that when you're not choosing my way, you're choosing the other's ways, you're choosing these other ways, that it's ultimately leading to destruction. That, that's what he's trying to help us understand. That's what he's talking about when he says other ways lead to destruction. So let's see if we can't flesh that out a little bit. Let's just talk briefly. Let's give two examples, right? I mean, how can we, can we see this in reality, right? That's a great question to answer. Can we see in reality that choosing ways other than God's ways actually leads to destruction? Well, if we think about our culture at large, I think we don't have to look much further than our attitudes towards sexuality, right? If you think about the sexual revolution from the 1960s on and the consequences of that sexual revolution, which essentially the banner flying over that whole revolution is this. I should be able to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. That's the, that's the mantra, right? That's the, that's the DNA. And think about where that has led us. Now, I won't give you all the statistics on sexually transmitted diseases and unintended pregnancies and all the damage that's done to the nuclear family and what it's done to us in terms of our mental and emotional health and the stress we feel as a nation as a result of that. I'll just, I'll tell you this one thing. We live in probably the most prosperous time in the history of the world. There is, there's never been a time where more material possessions and material goods and prosperity has existed among a group of people. And we live among the group of people who are most prosperous during the most prosperous time of humanity's existence on the earth, right? You recognize that? And yet in, among our specific group of people, the rates of depression and suicide have never been higher. We have the highest rates of depression and suicide of any group of people ever on the face of the planet. Now, I'm not saying that that's completely connected to our attitudes towards sexuality, but I would think it'd be foolish to disconnect them completely. We are reaping what we have sown when it comes to dismissing God's vision for sexuality to say that sex is a great gift from God that's meant to be practiced in the covenant bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. And that when you do that, I mean, just think about that. If you did that for one generation, if everyone on earth committed themselves to that for one generation, we'd eradicate all sexually transmitted diseases. It wouldn't exist anymore, right? Because ultimately we'd be following God's standard. It's just, it's just so plain. It's like the nose on our face. And here's the interesting thing. When you talk to secular people, secular people who think about these things all the time, what you will never find, you don't find them disagreeing with the reality that 
that a Judeo-Christian view of sexuality is actually healthier, uh, is actually creates more thriving, that it would protect us from all kinds of illness and difficulties, right? It would, it would change everything. They don't argue that it's not actually good. They argue that it's not practical, right? Which is to say people will never do that. It's just not practical to believe that someone could, uh, could obey that standard and live according to that which seems like an awfully dismissive approach to something that we know can produce thriving and flourishing. It does. So that's one example of how a way other than God's ways creates destruction. But you know what, friends, let's think about this because we're talking about the culture at large, right? But this chapter is not about the culture at large, is it? Who's this chapter written to? It's written to the people of God. And so let's ask ourselves, where might God say to us, you've chosen a way other than my way? I might argue that if God were to speak into this room right now, he would say, you have chosen a way other than my way when it comes to marriage. When it comes to marriage. Because God intends for us to have a vision of marriage that is so lofty and so high, and yet we as a church have failed to capture that and live according to it. So when... when God created marriage. He said, I created it so that there would be a place where my covenant love for my people would be on display. And husbands, when you love your wives, you're supposed to love them the way Christ loves the church. You're supposed to represent Christ and show the world what his love is like in the way you sacrifice, in the way you lay down your desires to care for hers. You are supposed to be first to die not just in a willingness to lay down your life, but in a willingness to live so that she's more fully satisfied in Jesus. And wives, you're to be like the church. You're supposed to display the love and affection and respect and honor that the church has for her Lord Christ. You're meant to display that. Husbands and wives, distinct roles, equal in value, but different in function, different in role. And we haven't taken that very seriously. We haven't taken very seriously God's way when it comes to marriage, his vision of roles of husbands and wives and how they're supposed to represent this magnificent miracle that is Christ's love for his church. Because if we did, we would behave a lot differently in our marriages, wouldn't we? Rather than asking ourselves, what makes me happy, right? What makes me feel most fulfilled? What do I want to do? I don't want to do the dishes. Has anyone ever in the history of the world wanted to do the dishes? I don't want to serve. I don't want to die to self. I just want to do what I want to do. And my marriage should make me happy. And when it doesn't, I'm just going to chuck it. Now, friends, we have failed because we failed to have a lofty view of marriage and God's view of marriage, because we've failed to embrace this way, we fail to function in our marriages in the way that he would, has designed us to function in them and called us to function in them as husbands and as wives. And the result quite often is that we end up just chucking our marriages and saying, well, whatever. And we get divorced for reasons that God does not permit divorce. We end the covenant because we don't understand that God does not end his covenant with us even when we rebel against him. He is faithful and we are called to be faithful. And that there might be a type of flourishing and thriving that we could experience in our marriages, even in and perhaps particularly in, particularly in the hard moments of those marriages if we understood what marriage was really meant to do. 
to sanctify us and make us holy and display to the world the goodness of our true and better groom, Jesus Christ. If we had got that, oh, it would change our way of doing marriage. But friends, I think if we're honest, we have to understand that God says to us, your marriages don't look much different than the marriages of the world. Not much is gospel-shaped about those marriages. But I have a better way. And you failed to embrace it. Remember, he speaks first to his people, right? So, argument number one, God says, I'm a good father. I know the best ways. Argument number two, about why he knows the best ways. Other ways lead to destruction. Argument number three is this. You can't cover up your failures with religious rituals. You can't cover up your failures with religious rituals. Here's what he says in verses 10 through 17. Now, I want you to hear this. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So he's calling his people Sodom. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not a good thing, okay? He's utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and now he's calling his people, essentially equating them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, often when we read this text, it gets used as a way of saying, you see, God doesn't want empty worship. He doesn't want you to come into the church and just sing songs that you don't really mean or kind of be half-hearted about it. But did you catch that what he's indicting them for is actually not that their worship isn't passionate enough. He's not indicting them for the fact that they're not regular enough in their attendance at the temple. He's actually saying, look, you've got the sacrificial system. You're obeying it to a T. You have nailed it. You are sacrificing animals just like you're supposed to. You're keeping all the festivals. You're doing all of it. What I'm indicting you for is the fact that when you leave the temple, your life doesn't look any different than it did before you came in. You come and you sacrifice a bull for the atonement of your sins, and then you walk out and you continue to oppress, and you continue to hate righteousness. You continue to do whatever it is that you want to do. You walk on your path, not on my path. Therefore, I am sick of hearing you come into my house and tell me how wonderful I am and go through all the rituals. That's what God is saying to the people. Cut it out. I'm so tired of your life out there looking one way and your life in here looking another. So what I take from that, friends, is this. What God is saying to us is you can show up at church and throw a few bucks in the plate and do your religious rituals, but it will 
not fool him. He is not deceived, and he is not well-pleased with faithful church attendance. He wants your heart, every part of it. He wants you to love justice and righteousness. And he wants what happens in here not to just be a Sunday ritual, but to be something that shapes the way you think about the way you work and how you live in your marriage and how you treat your kids and how you treat your neighbor. He wants everything to be shaped by the gospel that gets proclaimed when you come and sit in these chairs. So the question becomes, look, if religious rituals are not pleasing to God when I don't practice justice and righteousness and don't walk on his path, then why do, why do I do them, right? And I think the answer to that question is we think that by performing religious rituals over and over and over again that we're kind of helping our good outweigh our bad. They were essentially going, yeah, I know when I walk out of here, I don't function with integrity in my workplace, but I come to church every Sunday and I throw a 20 in the plate. So, right, give and take, we good? God, we good? And God's answer to that is, no, we're not good. It's not the point. You know the irony of that? Church family, you know the irony of that? Is that we think perhaps we're kind of like, you know, putting some in the good pile and, yeah, we know we've got some stuff in the bad too, but maybe they'll balance each other. We think we're doing that. What we're actually doing is turning ourselves into hypocrites and making it harder to hear God's voice. The more we show up here out of ritual and then go out and choose our own paths rather than, rather than God's paths of justice and righteousness, the more we actually make it harder to hear what God actually desires from us. The more our hearts actually become hard to the conviction of the Spirit. It actually does you a disservice to come and sit in this congregation and hear the teaching of God's word and then have no intention to go out and change anything because you become hard-hearted and hypocritical. Oh, and how we want to spare you from that. Oh, how we want to spare you from that. So God says, I'm a good father. God says, other ways lead to destruction. And God says, you can't You can't just cover up the fact that you're choosing other ways by performing religious rituals. You can't do it. Now, you want a word of hope? Because he has something great to tell us. Praise God for that. He says this, verse 18. This this is how you answer the question, what what do I do? What do I do if I've chosen other ways? When I haven't chosen God's way, I've chosen other ways. What do I do? And the answer to that question that God is going to give us is let God's merciful promises lead you to repentance. So here's what he's going to say in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. That word actually means let us debate together. Let us argue together, right? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you hear what he's saying to us? Church, do you hear what he's saying to us? He is saying, I am eager, eager to give you forgiveness. Eager to pour out mercy on you. Eager to do it. 
And he's not saying that, okay, you go out and obey and then you'll get forgiveness. But what he is saying is that when forgiveness truly lands in a life, it always brings with it a disposition to want to obey the forgiver. You follow that? It always comes with a disposition that wants to obey the one who is forgiven. That's what forgiveness does. And he's saying, don't you know that you can thrive? You can flourish. This is what I'm telling you. And friends, we live on this side of the cross where we know that ultimately the promises of God have been fulfilled in him. Think about the nation, uh, the people of Judah are hearing this and they don't have the guarantee of the cross of Jesus to look at. They're looking forward in hope to a rescuer and hoping that God's promises will ultimately be fulfilled in one who could rescue them and make God's promises sure and steadfast and certain. And now we look back at the one who has done that who has said to us, how do I know that God says, I can make your sins, which are like scarlet, as white as snow? How do I know? Because Jesus has come and he has declared, I bring mercy and forgiveness. And it doesn't matter how far down the path of disobedience you have gone. It doesn't matter how much you have rejected justice and righteousness. You have God's hand of mercy extended to you to say to you, come and flourish in my way. Come and be part of my way. Jesus is both the guarantee that he can invite you into that and the guarantee that you can have the strength to do it. That he can impart to you through Christ and his spirit the strength to obey. That's a good promise. Yes, church? Yeah, because we just got a whole lot of Here's where you're going wrong. And then he comes in and says, oh, but don't you know? Don't you know? You can, you can eat the good of the land, he says here. You can have thriving. Just, just come into my way. Come and walk in justice and righteousness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love your word, even when it's hard to hear. Words of judgment are never easy, Lord, but we don't want to avoid them. <clears throat> we don't want to sidestep them as if you didn't speak them. So help us. Help us to now take and apply. Cause your spirit to come and apply your word to our hearts and to our minds so that we might see where we are not walking in your way, but walking in another way, and that we would forsake that. We'd put it down and begin to walk in your way because you're such a good father. You want us to walk in your way so we might thrive and flourish. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would convict us that we could do so. And thank you that your promise is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to worry that we would leave behind the other way and come to your way and find that you don't receive us. That we can know that you will receive us and you will make our sins, though they are as scarlet, as white as snow. We want to sing to you now, Lord. I pray that you'd receive our praises. There you are due so much more. You're due so much more. But this is what we have to give, and so we give it today to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's close our time together by singing to the Lord.